Every once in a while, someone asks us why we are farming. In our podcast today, I think we should take a look at that. Welcome to Longleaf Breeze, beginners learning subsistence farming using three simple principles, approaching but never reaching subsistence. It's got to be fun while we're doing it. And we don't make allness statements. And now, Lee and Amanda Borden. Thanks, Adrian, and welcome to our podcast of July the 27th, 2011. The title on the podcast today is Why We Farm, and I chose that with your assent uh, because there's a series running now on The Contrary Farmer in which a series of people have been invited to and have commented, uh, written little essays about why I farm. And I thought it'd be fun, and you think it's fun too, for us to spend some time talking about why we're doing this. Yeah, that's right. And part of it is what I said earlier, which is sometimes just in everyday conversation, the question comes up too. Especially when people find out that we moved here from a very nice house in a a location that was about a five-minute drive from Whole Foods and uh, nice shopping areas. Like, well, why would you move out there and try to farm? But if you've noticed, and I find this striking, most of those questions, why are you doing this, are not coming from people who shared our suburban life. They tend to come from the people who already are in a rural setting or a small town Mm -hmm. setting. Yeah. Yeah, And, and that may have to do with their perceptions right or wrong, that somehow life is easier, better, whatever, blissful Blissful in suburbia, (laughs) which it's not. But anyway, on to your, your, I I think you're on to something, and I have to confess, I don't read The Contrary Farmer, so I don't really know about the dialogue that's going on there, and therefore I will come to our dialogue today with no preconceived notions about what other people are saying. You know, I'll be honest with you. I haven't read anything on the contrary farmer that's uh, about in these why I farm pieces that really surprised me other than the tacky article somebody wrote a while back, and I'll link to this particular one on the show notes page if I can still find it, saying that you can't really call yourself a farmer if you're not depending on what you sell from the farm to make a living. And I found that offensive, and I was not alone. There good. was a good, good healthy, um, scornful response to that kind of divisive statement about farming. There are so few of us who are doing this to try to push a wedge between those on one side and those on another side of an imaginary line is totally unproductive. And I agree with that. I agree. And, and especially those of us who are, are into small farming, organic farming, our numbers, we need every, we need a coalition of everyone who's doing that. And um, yeah, I'm willing to say to them, great, and let us help you in any way we can, but please accept our reasons for doing it and or our whether our income dependence or lack thereof on doing it and let's unite to fight Monsanto and those who would <laughs> you know um, limit the options that we uh, small-time farmers have. So specifically today we are describing why Lee and Amanda choose to farm the way we do 
which is organic subsistence farmers. Right. Why right. do we choose to be organic subsistence farmers? And mm-hmm. when you do that, you and I have a slightly different orientation, you on one hand, I on the other, about why we have done this. So I thought it first would be helpful for you to lay out and then for me to lay out our specific personal orientation. Okay. Well, I'll be glad to do that. I, as, as we've said before on many of these podcasts, I'm the ultimate tree hugger and want to step lightly on the earth, want to protect endangered species, want to um, live in harmony with nature as much as possible. And I will confess later that sometimes living in harmony with squash bugs is not easy. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, the, the idea of let's just nuke it, let's spray it, let's kill it, let, you know, let's um, subdue it, that's a foreign concept to me. Uh, partly because of, thanks very much to the mentorship of my professor, Dr. Ed Passerini at the University of Alabama back in the 70s. Who was an, an who is and the, and was then an extremely insightful man when it came to uh, trends, population trends, the fact that we're overpopulated as a human species um, in terms of resources and uh, depletion and and so many of the, the kinds of concepts that we talk about. So that influenced me. Number one, I've always loved being outdoors it, from the time I was a kid. My mother. I don't think, she, she's not here to argue with me, but I think rarely did she have to force me to go outside and play. I really liked being outdoors. And I was a tomboy, and I ran around with the neighborhood boys, and if they wanted to shoot cap guns, fine, I'd do that, climb a tree. So that's, you don't have to twist my arm to make me take on a livelihood, an avocation that's dealing with something I really enjoy doing anyway. Um, I guess another reason is, uh, I, this is something we can do and live away from the city lights. Um, we might not have addressed this too much in the podcasts in the past, a little bit, I think, about um, at least a recent, I won't say obsession, but desire that I had to move out to the country. That I, I always said I always wanted to live in the country. Well, probably as a young girl, I was glad I lived closer in and could walk around and walk and find my friends. But now... Uh, we all have cars, and even though that could be coming to an end, but our friends, our new friends, live in a, a range where we can still see them. Uh, it's not like I want to be a hermit and not be around people. Thanks to the Internet, I can keep in touch with my old friends. Uh, so it, it, why not live in the country? It's great. Away from, you know, what is it, not seeing the smoke in your neighbor's chimney? I don't see our neighbor's chimney at all. True. <laughs> And it's interesting to hear you say, I've always loved being outdoors. I've always wanted to be away from the city lights because you and I spent the majority of our previous adult life anyway in the city where you spent most of your time indoors in your work as a professor at a college. And I spent most of my life, my working life indoors. And we were totally surrounded by city lights. So, um, This is our way of saying, okay, we've done what we need to do to make our livelihood. Now let's go do what nourishes our soul. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. So you're going to talk about your reasons then for wanting to do this. And mine, uh, and I should preface this by saying when, when we tell you these different orientations, 
I think I am very sympathetic with your goals and you are very sympathetic with mine. Right. It's not that they disagree with each other. It's yes. just uh, my orientation is more strongly in the direction of this. I'm convinced that complex civilization is going is already in the process of declining and will continue that decline during the next 25, 30 years may even reach a point where it collapses. I'm, I'm not sure of that, but I'm confident it's going to decline, which means, among other things, that food is going to be a much more challenging... Um, it's going to be more of a challenge to get enough food to eat than it has been in the past, and I expect that challenge to be chronic. It's not going to be something that reaches a pinnacle, and then we say, we got past that, and we're going to be okay now. Yeah. We will continue to struggle with getting enough nourishing food to eat. I also think that our economy, based on money, has become so dysfunctional now that it's laboring under the weight of all of the debt we have piled on, and as a result, it's very likely that money will become less important in the future than it has been in the past. Yeah. Replaced by, among other things, the gift economy, where you and I do what we can to help a neighbor or a friend or a family member, and then that person does something to help somebody else, and that person in turn does something to help us. If the gift economy is working well, people have enough confidence in it that they become instinctively generous. And I think there is a high likelihood that the gift economy will become uh, an important part of how we get along in the world. Nothing close to a survivalist mentality. It's sort of the opposite of survivalist yeah. because it's all about building community. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So uh, that's that's sort of my orientation, and like I say, I'm sympathetic with yours, and you've, I, you and I have talked about that enough that um, I think you're sympathetic with those sort of points that I laid out. And I'll finish with that old saw that our children are already tired of hearing me say, which is when you and I were growing up, Success was all about making a lot of money. In the generation to come, and by that I mean during the next 25 or 30 years, success will be about learning to find ways to be happy while making little or no money. And those people who figure out how to be happy while making little or no money are going to be successful. So that's uh, Lee's two cents worth on this. And I love growing things. I didn't enter into this with that thought, um, but boy, I just love puttering around in the orchard. Well, I think I'd have to agree with that because I was not, one of our good friends, Jan Garrett, who um, has a farm not too far from here, once told me she really, even as a child, enjoyed growing things. She would like to put a seed in the ground and see what came up and and. I had to tell her, and I'll confess here and now, as a child, 
I really could care less. I mean, I my grandmother was an excellent gardener. She enjoyed those things, and I thought, more power to you, Grand Grand, enjoy it. Um, but I liked the normal little girl thing. Not that growing things wouldn't be, but I, you know, I was more of a, even though I was a tomboy, I didn't care about gardening so much. I just was a, I wanted to play, and then as I got to be a teenager, again, my interest never did go toward agriculture or even gardening. But like you, here at this stage of our lives, and I think because I've moved to this environment and I'm actually seeing things grow, it is such a high. There is nothing like looking five days after you've planted a seed in the ground, looking out and seeing a new... It's coming up. It's I coming know, up. I know, a new seedling <laughs> emerging from the ground or seeing the first fruit that that plant produces. It's just... And why I never got into that thrill before i don't know but it is it's it's kind of um addictive it's addictive <laughs> and i just can't wait for us to can those green beans you've been bringing in yeah. that's um that's a high well i thought it might be helpful for us to spend a, a few minutes here at the tail end talking about why we are not commercial farmers because that's the other you know sort of the flip side we got a lot of questions from our friends saying well, gosh, you could sell fill-in-the-blank. And, and I will tell you, this year I came about as close as I ever have thought I would to setting up a roadside stand and selling cucumbers. We had a lot <laughs> of cucumbers. People would pay good money for those, I'm sure. What did you tell me that um, one of our friends said she had just paid for cucumbers? Our friend Kathy said she paid $2 for two cucumbers. All right, so a dollar a piece. Yeah. And we have several dollars worth of cucumbers. Yeah, you know, it's, um, and I don't know how long it will last. And I didn't have to worry about planting any certain variety to try to, um, although I should have had an inkling when I planted one called Market More. <laughs> we yeah. might have a lot of cucumbers. Well, let's talk a little bit about why we have not, at least so far, elected to be commercial farmers. Yes, I think uh, one of the things that you know we sort of take for granted, but commercial farmers cannot, is we grow what we like. We don't have to worry about selling what we grow. So yeah, if we point. don't like it, we don't grow it, and if you know, we just we do what make what makes us feel happy and fulfilled and so forth. And there's that's a big deal. Yeah, and and um, we also weren't sure from the beginning that we could grow sufficient quantities of food to make a go of it. Uh, and now we're beginning to wonder whether <laughs> we, we do have some quantities well, of things coming cucumbers in. cucumbers and rattlesnake beans, I think maybe I could have made a go. And peas. And the peas. peas are coming in in a big yeah. way. And very soon now we intend to, or we expect fruit to start coming in mm -hmm. in a big way. Yeah. Uh, but we've always said we wouldn't grow enough, and maybe we won't. I, and I don't want to have that pressure, you know, to have to grow exactly. enough of something to make a living doing it. Um, and, and, you know, I think that um, we've talked to enough farmers, and we've been to Southern SOG and other uh, conferences where people talk about marketing and the kinds of money that they're making. I don't see how they live on it quite frankly. I agree. It's almost shocking when we learn how little money farmers make. Yeah. Um, so 
we can, you and I both have professional, um, and, and we're very blessed in that way, professional training toward in other areas that help us to actually survive financially. Um, because I don't, you know, you're, you're such, um, the, you're at the mercy of the weather. You're at the mercy of, um, pests. And especially since we are committed to being organic, when you're invaded by squash bugs, and they wipe out half your squash. We can't grab the seven dust and, yeah, and nuke them. Yeah. And that is one thing I am committed to for the reasons I talked about at the very beginning of the podcast. Because part of living in harmony with nature is not nuking it and not poisoning it. So whatever we're doing, it's going to be organic as much as we can possibly make it. And um, to to be able on the scale that we have to grow enough um, healthy looking veg organically, I just doubt whether we could make a living doing it. Um, and the other thing is that we like to grow, you mentioned what we like in terms of tomatoes. I like tomatoes, great. Or cucumbers, I like cucumbers, I grow that. But I also want to be able to grow the funky types of tomatoes I want to, like heirlooms, which don't necessarily look regular and they might have weird little spots that I don't mind cutting out with a knife when I'm ready to eat that tomato, but I look at that tomato and think, I couldn't take that to market. Nobody right. would buy it. That's right. Customers want their food unblemished. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a perception among the public that an unblemished look is an indicator of quality, and you and I know better. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And uh, anybody who knows heirloom tomatoes will, knows that many of them are weirdly, oddly shaped. They're not the regular um, type, nice round with a little green stem on the top um, that you're used to. So, but boy, they taste great. Why would I want to give up having that on a regular basis? Absolutely. So that's another reason that it's difficult for us to envision our needing, our placing ourselves in a position where we need to sell food to survive because it's so difficult to convince customers that what the kind of food we grow is worth paying more for, not less. Because of the quality. Because it's so high quality. Yeah fresher, tastes better. And I remember our conversation with our friend George Brown, who owns a blueberry farm near here, about selling his organic, beautiful, large, ripe, hand-picked blueberries at a farmer's market and having someone challenge him, well, I can buy it at Walmart for, I've forgotten what the Fill price. Fill in the blank. Fill in the blank for a dollar, you know. Uh, less or uh, whatever. You know, yeah. a dollar less. And, but you know, we want to say, but you aren't getting that quality. You're getting blueberries that were grown to be um, survive a long yeah, shipment survive process. A long shipment they were to picked be, before they were right. ripe, and then gassed. I mean, I don't know how you do blueberries, but that's typical of the practices used by the industrial food system to pick things when they're not ripe, yes. and then you gas them so they look ripe. And they may be ripe, but they're not as tasty not and as not tasty. as nutritious That's right. as the kind of food we enjoy here. And in the case of something like a bell pepper or some type of uh, food that you go to Costco and buy, and I mean, I'm as guilty as anybody. I've gone to Costco and bought food before, but um, and I'm glad Costco is there. Don't hear me bashing them. But when you buy one of those big bags of bell peppers, they have really thick skins. They are bred to be 
to have an, a long shelf life, to be able to handle um, ha- handling, you know, to be sturdy, and like you said, to be able to be kept a long time, stored and shipped. So that, but that flavor is not as good as the bell peppers I'm growing out of my garden right now that I am so lucky to be able to go out and pick that right off the plant and slice it up and we have it for dinner that night. Exactly. And I guess the final reason why you and I have not been tempted, at least so far, to become commercial farmers is our confidence in the gift economy. We fully understand and we expect that over time, when we have more of something than we need, we'll share it with our neighbors. And when they have more of something than they need, they'll share with us. And that system will have more resilience to it, will actually be more sound than our asking people to pay us money when we sell them something. Right. That makes sense. So um, that's that's another reason why we're, so far, at least so far, comfortable not being commercial farmers. And we have overstayed our welcome. We've taken too long, but it's been a good conversation. I'm glad we had the chance to visit about this. Good to reflect on it. Have a good week. You've been listening to Longleaf Breeze with Lee and Amanda Borden. We'd love to hear from you. You can call the farm at 334-625-8682. Send email to letters at longleafbreeze.com. Our address is P.O. Box 780-446, Tallahassee, Alabama, 36078. Visit us at longleafbreeze.com to learn more about the farm, to browse our archive, and to look over our planting database. You can also read the Daily Farm Log, check in with Lee and Amanda, and talk with other listeners. That's longleafbreeze.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.